Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Crane, and I'm counting out the steps to find a secret room. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I'm actually Tilda Swinton. The whole time! (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're talking about the 2018 version of Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino and written by David Kajanich. There will be spoilers for this film, so if you care about having the ending spoiled, maybe go listen to a different episode. We have lots of good ones at this point. So this film was based on the 1977 Dario Argento film, which is obviously one of the most iconic Italian horror films and is noted for its distinct use of really bright colors that set it apart as very artistic. This film sort of goes in the direct opposite direction, and we'll talk about that a lot more in the analysis section, but Luca Guadagnino clearly made an artistic choice to not make a similar film to the Dario Argento film, even though it is based off of that film and is in some ways a remake. I watched this on Amazon Prime, and you know how it has like the little like trivia on the side? Mm -hmm. Every single time they couldn't figure out what to say, it was just like... It was an artistic choice to deviate from the original and do bleak colors. And I was like, I get it. I see it. But yeah, (laughs) that's all. (laughs) Love a good trivia moment. (laughs) So this film starts with a title card declaring that it is six acts and an epilogue set in divided Berlin. Then it says that act one is called 1977, which is the year that the original film came out. The film begins with a young girl named Pat running past a protest in the street and arriving at her therapist, Dr. Klimperer's office. Pat is singing the whole time and doesn't seem to really engage with Dr. Klimperer. She says the song is stuck in her head and is too loud. She tells Dr. Klimperer that an unnamed they want to keep her alive after all, and that they are witches who have been grooming her for something. She says that the witches give her things like perfect balance and the ability to speak telepathically, but they've taken her hair and urine and now they can always see through her eyes. She says that she thought she wanted this possession by Mother Marcos, but now she doesn't. She sees a book on Dr. Klimper's table that scares her and then throws down a picture frame. Then she leaves his office, saying that the witches will kill her if they knew she was there. The scene then goes to a farm in the American countryside, and we see Susie and her sister caring for their bedridden mother. Her family are Mennonites. Then we see Susie arrive in Berlin. She then walks to the dance academy in the rain, which is perfect for a horror movie. And it's also bleak. And it's also a reference to the original. Miss Tanner then greets her, and then she tells her that they tried to reschedule and that it wasn't a good time, but she can go ahead because she's already there. Susie warms up in a rehearsal studio and watches the dance company in the next room over. Then she auditions, but when she asks why Madame Blanc isn't watching her audition personally, Miss Tanner says that she has no formal training and is lucky she's being given an audition at all. The people watching her audition request that she dance without music, and as she's auditioning, Madame Blanc in the next room over seems to look up suddenly, and when the audition ends, Madame Blanc is standing in a corner of the room. It's like she teleported. Mysterious. Damn, she's so fast. (laughs) (laughs) After the audition, Miss Hanner tells Susie that she's been accepted, and Susie says she doesn't need to go back to the States and can start immediately. Miss Tanner says that they don't pay their dancers, but can offer them free housing. And that housing would normally be full, but because a girl named Patricia has just left the company under sad circumstances, there's an open room. Madame Blanc is shown watching this whole exchange. Another girl named Sarah, played by Mia Goth, who I love because of X and Pearl, (laughs) uh, arrives at Susie's hotel room and apologizes for being late due to the rain. Susie's extremely happy to have been accepted into the dance school, and Sarah praises Madame Blanc for having fought for women's autonomy during the war. As they're talking, there's a bombing down on the street, and Sarah explains the political situation and how a group called the Red Army Faction is fighting against a banker who used to be a Nazi. Sarah says that Susie can't understand it because she's not from Germany. We then go to act two, Palaces of Tears. 
At the Academy, there's a vote for whether Blanc or Marcos would get control over the company. This is told through a voiceover, only shown over footage of the woman waking up in the dorm in the morning. Marcos wins and remains in control. The woman also then discussed how Marcos wants to try the ritual again very soon, and that they need to choose a new girl now that Patricia is gone. We then switch scenes to Dr. Klemperer, who travels into East Berlin through a checkpoint at the border. He then walks a long distance to get to a small house seemingly a bit outside of the city, and he touches one of those hearts with initials carved into the side of the house and talks, which is implied to be to his deceased wife. Back at the dance company, Susie moves into her room, which is next to Sarah's, who says to let her know if she ever needs anything. The scene switches back quickly to Dr. Klemperer again, and his assistant named Miss Sesam arrives and mentions how Germany used to have strong women before the war, like Klemperer's wife Anka. Susie attends her first rehearsal, and Madame Blanc very kindly introduces her. She decides to sit aside until she feels ready to join. And they start rehearsing a piece called Wolk, and Madame Blanc says Olga will be taking Patricia's part while Susie will take Olga's old part. After a few minutes, Olga yells at Madame Blanc saying that she blames her for Patricia's absence, but Madame Blanc says that she probably left to join the RAF terrorist movement. However, in response, uh, Olga says that Madame Blanc manipulates everything and that everyone there is hypocrites. Olga storms out and says that she's leaving and calls them witches. After she leaves, Madame Blanc says that they need someone to dance the lead, but all of the other girls refuse. Susie then steps up, saying that she's watched the documentary of the piece a hundred times at the library, and she's seen it in person too. Miss Tanner then says that she needs to dance it completely alone first to make sure she doesn't injure the other girls if she messes it up. Olga is stopped by two other women on her way out who laugh at her. Olga then starts crying as their laughter continues to echo behind them. Back in rehearsal, Madame Blanc stops Susie after a couple seconds and says that she needs to concentrate more because the dance is no joke. Then Olga, seemingly crying and moving against her will, stumbles into a dance studio where the door locks behind her. As Susie starts dancing... Olga is pushed against the completely mirrored walls of the room, seemingly as a result of Susie's dancing. Olga's body begins to rip apart as she continues to flail, contorting into impossible positions. Eventually, Susie stops dancing, starting to cough, and Olga is left barely alive. Susie is confused about why she feels dizzy, saying that this never happens, but Madame Blanc reassures her that it's natural. Later, Susie's in her room and she collects a urine sample for a regular drug test that all of the girls are required to do. She remembers how, in her childhood, she was obsessed with going to Berlin. The scene then shifts to Dr. Klemper reading Patricia's diary while she was talking about Mother Tenebrarum, Mother Lacrimarum, and Mother Suspiriorum, and how all the people at the Academy are connected to Madame Blanc. We then switch scenes uh, back to the academy, and we see all of the adults standing over Olga's crumpled, barely alive body in the other dance studio, and then they all stick meat hooks into her body, which I thought was kind of interesting, because like, one of them, she was like, let's not hurt Olga, and then they poke her with, with big metal things, and it's like, okay, and then they drag her out um, through a doorway behind one of the mirror wall panels, and then there's like streaks of blood on the floor yeah (laughs) the blood (laughs) is really interesting in this movie because Mm -hmm. everything in the dance studio is very like brown and tan Mm -hmm. and there's just like these bright red streaks of blood whenever something violent happens which i feel like is kind of a reference to how in the original like the blood is super bright red like it's famous for not really being the color of blood it's Mm -hmm. like scarlet that's so cool i also wondered i'm like they filmed a lot in this mirror studio. I wonder how they, like, did the camera work. Because, like, the camera's, like, not there, but there are mirrors everywhere. I know. I never know how they do that. Yeah. I should Google it, because basically every movie does it, and I never know what they're doing. <laughs> then Dr. Klemperer calls the police station to report that Patricia is missing. At the dance studio, Madame Blanc talks about how Susie's perfect for their intentions and is a natural at channeling the power, 
to as she discusses the situation with the other women. Susie then has a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Madame Blanc and tells her about her Mennonite upbringing. She says that she saw the dance company perform many times in New York City as a young girl, although she was punished for sneaking out to do so. Susie said that dancing that day felt the way she imagines animals must feel when they have sex, and Madame Blanc says that she may get the weed if she continues to dance well, but that she needs to work on her jumps. She also says that Olga lacked conviction when she danced the lead and that she's glad Olga is gone. That night, Susie tells Sarah that she got the lead role and that Madame Blanc is very kind. Sarah's upset by what Olga said in rehearsal about Patricia being missing and says that Patricia never trusted the matrons, but that she never understood why. Susie then pinky promises Sarah that she'll do a favor for her the next day. We then see Susie dream about her childhood home, a mirror shattering, a hand drawing the letter A in blood, her mother punishing her by smashing her hands with irons, as well as a series of other quick images of women dying or with their hair in their faces. Then a title card shows that it's Act 3, Borrowing. Two men arrive at the dance academy and ask to talk to Mother Marcos about Patricia. One of the other matrons lies about being Madame Blanc so that she can talk to the men instead of the real Madame Blanc. Susie and Sarah sneak past several of the matrons in the lobby. Apparently, in the process of doing that favor, Sarah requested the previous day. They sneak into an office, and Sarah breaks into a locked filing cabinet with a letter opener. She finds that Patricia and Olga's files are both missing from the cabinet. And Sarah says that she wants to do this to look for a phone number for Patricia's parents so that she can check in with them. Susie walks through a door in the back of the office and finds several of the matrons messing with the two police officers, who are seemingly conscious but completely unreactive. Susie walks back out and doesn't say anything to Sarah, seemingly pretty unconcerned with this. I wasn't expecting to see a full penis. Oh yeah, the police <laughs> officers are totally naked, and it's kind of wild. At rehearsal that day, Madame Blanc says that they'll focus on a new piece about rebirth and how we can't escape it. She says that Susie will improvise a lead dance for the piece because she's interested in her instincts, and says that this piece will be called Open Again, but she said it in German. As they're dancing, an almost zombie-like hand is shown in another room. Later, Blanc complains to Miss Tanner that they put Madame Marcos in a storage closet near the rehearsal studio, but Miss Tanner says that Madame Marcos requested it. Miss Tanner calls her Mother Marcos, but Madame Blanc says to stop using that title because if she was really one of the three mothers, they would not be in this situation in the first place. Miss Tanner says that Marcos wants her for the ritual, and Madame Blanc says they shouldn't waste another girl so quickly, but Miss Tanner points out that she lost the vote, so they're still going to do what Marcos says. She also says that having found Susie so quickly will keep Marcos alive, but Madame Blanc refuses and says that she will take her time. Susie asks if Sarah felt something odd while dancing, but Sarah says that she didn't. She also mentioned that Patricia said similar things. The girls then go out together that night, and then they happen to run into the matrons at a restaurant. Telepathically, Blanc says that she wants a witness, a tradition that has been used recently. And they also say that they can't use one of the girls because it would drive them crazy and that they've been sending Susie dreams every night. That night, Susie dreams of a naked woman slitting her wrists, various organs, and a woman with blood covering her face, her and Sarah talking, a mask covered with worms, and many other quick images. Sarah then hears her screaming and comes to comfort her. One of the matrons comments that everyone there has similar nightmares. Sarah then sleeps in Susie's bed that night to comfort her, saying that they're sisters. Then the next scene begins Act 4, Taking. Dr. Klimperer travels back to West Berlin and goes to talk to the detectives who went to look into Patricia's disappearance. As he waits in the lobby, he sees a poster calling Patricia a terrorism suspect. When he talks to the detectives, they say they saw nothing suspicious at the dance studio, seemingly have no memory of how the matrons were torturing them. Klimperer tells them about Patricia's worry over Marcos, and that Patricia suspected her of being a witch, but the detectives obviously don't believe him. Klimperer also tells the detective that he helped Klimperer look for his wife during World War II, and that he's still grateful. 
The girls are back in rehearsal, and then Sarah gives Susie a little kiss, which is fun. And then we see Susie practicing her jumps, which Blanc is particularly concerned about. She then has another dancer named Caroline demonstrate the proper technique. Susie then tries again, but then offers su suggestions to Blanc about her choreography about the utilization of jumps within the routine, which causes Blanc to lecture her about how the piece was inspired by the war while circling around her. I thought this was really fun too because of how we see Susie on the ground, like with a camera angle, because it looked like she was a little child getting lectured by Blanc. It was just fun. Yeah, it's very clearly meant to play out this power dynamic of Susie being a student and Blanc a teacher. So while Susie was trying to act like an equal, Blanc sort of puts her in her place. Mm -hmm. As everyone is walking out of rehearsal, Caroline then falls to the ground. She starts foaming at the mouth and convulsing. She's taken back to her room by one of the matrons. Dr. Klimper is shown standing outside the dance academy, and he stops the girls on their way out of the studio to tell them that he's looking for Sarah, saying that he's one of Patricia's friends. Sarah and Dr. Klimper go to a restaurant where a radio is talking about terrorist attacks. Klimper tells Sarah about Patricia's theories and how Patricia described a struggle for control linked to politics within the dance company, though Sarah does not understand and says that she's unaware of this. He says delusion is a lie that tells the truth and insists that Patricia's theories about witches reflect real struggle within the company, although he does not necessarily believe in the supernatural aspects that Patricia told him. Sarah says the company is full of only love, but Klimper says love and manipulation are often found together. Klimper asks Sarah to look for hidden rooms in the studio that Patricia had mentioned, causing Sarah to storm out of the restaurant. That night... In the dorm, Sarah's told that Susie hasn't come back yet. And then we see that Susie is in a late night individual session with Blanc to practice her jumps. Blanc says the dance can never be beautiful or cheerful. I also wondered, is this like, is this the same room where Olga got fucked up? Maybe. There's a couple different dance studios and they pretty much look identical. Yeah. So it's definitely an option. I wasn't <laughs> sure. At the same time, in a scene that's cutting between the two of Blanc and Susie and the rest of the matrons, the matrons are having a debate about whether what they're attempting is even possible since it killed Patricia, and they say Blanc claims it only failed because Patricia was unwilling. Back in the studio, Blanc tells Susie that when you dance someone's choreography, you must empty yourself out and become only their work. Then she asks what body part Susie wants to be for the company, and Susie says she wants to be the company's hands. Then they practice Susie's jumps, and she's very successful. The matrons say that the company will die if Marcos dies before their attempt with Susie succeeds. And then one of them says that Marcos's body is like a prison, that she is riddled with disease. But another says that she'll hold on for them. Then, one of the matrons, who hasn't spoken the entire film, but has been seen around, kind of shaking, she's a little mousy, suddenly stabs herself in the neck with a knife. This was so startling because it's so out of nowhere. Like, they're literally just sitting around having a conversation, mm -hmm. and then she suddenly grabs a knife and stabs herself. It is extremely yeah. shocking. And then, like, blood is gushing out, squirting out. It's just... Yeah, because she hits, like, the arterial vein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. That night, Sarah hears muffled speaking and footsteps through the wall of her room and begins to wander the halls. She begins to count steps to look for rooms that are smaller than they should be and finds that there should be a door behind one of the mirrored wall panels in the rehearsal studio. She taps all the panels until she finds a hollow-sounding one and enters the secret hallway behind it. Sarah eventually finds a portrait of Blanc and another older woman seemingly painted onto human skin. She also finds jars full of flowers and sculptures of various body parts. She hears screaming and overhears Marcos being upset that the matron had stabbed herself. Sarah grabs one of the women's meat hooks out of the cabin to defend herself. The next day, Sarah goes to, to visit Klemper, and he tells her that Patricia said that there were three mothers, darkness, tears, and sighs. Sarah says that they had images of the three mothers made from porcelain. And Klemper tells her that Patricia said Marcos claims to be one of the three. But in an internal struggle, those who side with Blanc do not think that she is. 
Sarah's confused how the other matrons believe in this witchcraft, and Klemper compares them to the Reich, saying that they also had insignia and rituals. Sarah is worried that Patricia could still be trapped in the building, but Klemper is more worried about her. He says that she should leave the meat hook with him, because the matron shouldn't find out that she has it. On the way back to the studio, Sarah sees the matrons watching her walk out of wherever Klemper was. While getting ready for the dance, Susie gets her hair cut and then has a flashback to the priest reading her mother's last rites. Her mother said that Susie was her biggest sin and that she, quote, smeared her on the world. The next day, Sarah comes to Susie crying and saying that she's making a deal with the matron. Susie insists that nothing's wrong, but Sarah says she just hasn't seen the bill she has to pay for this deal yet. A TV shows that the RAF leaders have committed suicide after the end of holding hostages on a plane, which the radios have reported on in many different scenes throughout the movie. An audience is gathering in the lobby of the dance studio, and Susie's doing her makeup. We then see all of the girls wearing dresses made from red rope. Susie asks where Sarah is, and she's told that she had done her makeup very early in the morning and then left. Klemper also arrives for the performance to watch from the audience. Then Act 5 begins, which is called In the Mutter House, All the Floors Are Darkness. Sarah walks back into the secret passageway she found earlier, and she sees Patricia, barely alive. She seems to have turned into some sort of zombie, which terrifies Sarah, and she runs away. There's a few other people in similar states to Patricia, including Olga. Back at the performance, the dance floor is covered in lines that are very reminiscent of something like a pentagram that would be used in a witchcraft ritual. The performance is about to begin, and no one knows where Sarah is, but Miss Tanner instructs them to dance like she is with them anyway. Madame Blanc tells the audience that this is the last time they will ever perform Volk. Sarah is desperately looking for a way out of the secret passageway in the dark as the dance performance begins. She then falls into a circular hole in the floor and breaks her leg. And it's like... Why is there a hole in the floor? Where did that hole come from? It's just... She's walking down a normal hallway and then suddenly there's a giant deep hole in the floor. Actually, it's not that giant, though. It's, like, foot-sized. And she just, like, breaks her leg. Like, what is that? I don't know, dog. But it sucked. Yeah, rip. (laughs) Um, Several matrons find Sarah and then heal her leg magically. The matrons then say that Susie is ready and that it's time. The matrons and Sarah arrive back to the performance, and Sarah seems to move almost unconsciously, like the matrons are controlling her, and she rejoins the dance. Susie executes the jump she had been struggling with, and then Sarah collapses to the ground, screaming, as the broken leg the witches had healed had rebroken. It's, like, gruesome, the bone sticking out of her leg. Clemper jumps up to try to help, but then is pushed back by the matrons. We then see Klemper walk back through the snow, and he is remembering his wife. That night, Susie lies in bed while wearing Sarah's pink robe that she's had on the whole time, which I think is a reference to the pink robe Sarah has in the original Argento film. Madame Blanc enters Susie's rooms, and Susie telepathically apologizes for going off book. Blanc says it can't happen again, and that Susie is just beginning to understand. Blanc reassures Susie that the audience was not harmed and only witnessed the dance as the ritual was not successfully completed. Susie says she fears the worst in both the external politics of the city and the internal politics of the studio is yet to come. Blanc says she could explain to Susie, but she thinks it would be wrong, and Susie says that Blanc must love her. Blanc promises she won't have any nightmares that night. We then go to Act 6, Suspiriorum. The girls begin rehearsal the next day, and Blanc says that the ritual must happen that night. Dr. Klemperer goes for a walk and then throws a heavy bag over a bridge, as well as the meat hook that Sarah brought him. The dance company go all out for dinner that night, and Susie goes with him and moves to sit at the head of the table, opposite from Blank at the other end of the table. When Klemperer returns to his house from his walk on the bridge, his wife, Anke, is mysteriously there. Klemper tells her about how he had to leave to escape the Nazis after they were ratted out and then was caught and taken to a concentration camp. 
She tells him about how she had been living in Bristol and has had a good life, believing him to have died. The two are reunited, and then they cr- both cross back into West Berlin together. Back at dinner, all the matrons start singing and stroking the dancers' faces while Susie and Blanc ignore them and make intense eye contact across the table. Susie then seems to suddenly disappear from the table. Back with Dr. Klimper, he walks by the dance studio and turns around to find that Anka has disappeared. Then, two of the matrons run down from the studio screaming loudly and drag him into the secret passageway that Sarah found. They hold up the meat hook that he dumped off the bridge into the river, and they say that he's made it dirty. They also say it's his fault that he didn't get Anka out of Berlin before the war because she had wanted to leave for years, but they hadn't left because he... They're implying that he does not believe women. Susie arrives back at the academy and stands naked in her room. She then sees a flash of light on the wall and walks down the secret passageway and is now wearing a flowy robe like Blanc always wears. She emerges into a large room and finds Blanc standing in the center and all the dancers standing naked in a cluster at the far end, clearly arranged for a ritual. Marcos is also sitting on a bench near Blanc, clearly decrepit and blind. One of the matrons walks up to the various victims they were keeping in a secret room, including Sarah and Patricia, and stabs them with a meat hook while Clemper lies naked on the floor nearby, crying that he's innocent. Susie watches for a minute and then tells Blanc that she's ready and asks why Blanc looks so afraid, prompting Marcos to laugh, saying that Susie should be afraid. Marcos tells Susie that there will be nothing left of her after the ritual, and only space for Marcos to take, but Susie says that's what she wants. Blanc says that if Susie has any doubts at all, she will take Susie back and erase her memory, but Marcos says that this is not vanity or art and needs to happen. Blanc insists that something is wrong and that the ritual needs to stop, but Marcos insists that the division between them must end. Marcos then reaches out her hand, and then Blanc's throat is slit with magic. Susie has a flashback to her mother's death, as Marcos says that accepting her will mean she must forget her birth mother. Susie sees her childhood home, as Marcos begs her to expel her. Marcos chants, death to any other mother, causing all the matrons to shriek. The zombie of Susie's mother appears from out of the basement, causing Marcos to ask Susie who she is. And the scene is now suddenly shot so that the screen has like a red filter on it so that everything appears red. As Susie responds by saying, I am Mother Suspiriorum. The zombie of Susie's mother kisses Marcos, causing her to die. The zombie then does the same to everyone who voted for Marcos at the meeting earlier in the film, but passes over those who voted for Blanc. Susie stands at the top of the stairs looking over the bloody scene as those who voted for Marcos seem to explode as the zombie touches them, and Susie repeats, death to any other mother. Susie then rips open her own chest while saying, I am the mother, and the rip in Susie's chest is clearly meant to look vaginal. Susie walks up to Patricia, Sarah, and the other victims and asks them what they want, and they all respond that they want to die, so Susie kills them peacefully by kissing their cheeks. After Sarah dies, Susie holds her body in her lap for a moment before encouraging the remaining girls to keep dancing. Later, one of the matrons escorts Dr. Klemper out of the building as he survived the whole ritual, having been laying in the corner the whole time. We then go to the epilogue, a sliced up pear. Why is it called that, by the way? Did you figure that out? No. Good, good. All the dancers are in their rooms, panting heavily in their sleep. Klemper returns to his office with blood still streaking his face, and the girls wake up the next morning, apparently not remembering the ritual and joking about having drunk too much wine. One of the matrons tells the girls that Madame Blanc has left the company, and they're shown cleaning up the room that the ritual took place in, and they realize that Blanc is still barely alive. Back at Dr. Klimperer's home, he goes through the paperwork and other mementos from his wife Anka. Susie slash Mother Suspiriorum arrives to visit Dr. Klimperer. She tells him that she regrets what her daughters did to him, but wasn't in a position to prevent it at the time. 
She says he deserves the truth and tells him that Anka was apprehended by border guards after she tried to flee Germany and was killed in a concentration camp, where she died from exposure after being forced to stand outside in the cold. Susie also says that two women she befriended in the camp made her feel not alone as she died, and she says that her final thoughts were of a birthday trip to a classical music concert Dr. Klimper had taken her to. Susie then erases Klimper's memory of Anka, Patricia, Sarah, and herself, saying that guilt and shame are important, but not for him. She then vanishes, and Klimper seems to have a seizure. When Miss Saisam checks on him because of this, he can't remember who she is. It's now spring, and the heart with the initials in it that Dr. Klimper passed by earlier in the film is still there. There's also a post credit scene of Susie just staring off at something and then reaching out towards it. We hope this was more entertaining than the Wikipedia summary. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot, so we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from the break. We're now going to analyze topics that we felt needed to be analyzed or relate to the theme of this podcast of queer people in horror. There's a lot to unpack in this movie, so let's see how this goes. So one thing that's interesting about this movie is that Dr. Klimper, who is credited as having been played by Lutz Eversdorf, was actually played by Tilda Swinton in drag. Swinton kept denying it when people asked her if she was playing Dr. Klimper during the press tour, and eventually she said there's another question people could ask that would be a lot more insightful. So someone finally asked if she was playing Lutz Eversdorf, to which she responded that she was. That's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> artsy of her you know oh it's like so wow like, i'm playing luff's wow yeah not not i am him i'm playing him i'm playing him. i wonder if she had like a whole persona for him you know oh that's such a good question like because the cast didn't know she was him either right because like surely she was, they like, did right I mean, she looks like Tilda Swinton. <laughs> kind of sounded like her, too. Yeah, I bet they did. Probably, because I was, like, wondering, like, for the last scene, you know, not last scene, but, like, the ritual when she's just lying there and there's, like, two Tilda Swintons There's in the three! Room. There's three Tilda Swintons in the room! You're right, there are three. <laughs> like, how, how would they have had to film that? Deranged. I love it. <laughs> Her explanation for this artistic decision to play this character was pretty shallow, just saying that she thought it would be fun. But I feel like there's actually a lot to discuss here. First of all, it definitely adds to the queerness of the film that one of the main characters is literally just a drag king. Um, second of all, it means that the entire main cast is female, as the only men shown are these tiny little parts, like audience members at the dance or the police officers that have, like, one line. Like, there are basically no male characters in this film, if you exclude Dr. Klimper. Yeah, I really like that aspect of the film. I mean, I feel like this whole film is about women, you know, from beginning to the end. That's pretty obvious. So the fact that they went the extra mile and the entire main cast is female... Which is fun. Yeah. I feel like that had to be part of the decision to cast Tilda Swinton in this role. Even if she doesn't want to admit that that's why. Mm -hmm. That had to be why, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I couldn't think of any other reason why, you know? The only thing that I think would have been, like, cooler was if, like, you know, the directors and everyone were also female. Yeah. Because, like, I've seen some quotes from the director and stuff, or, like, or, and then I've seen, like, people, like, praise him, you know, because he's, like, or the film, you know, as an embodiment of kind of, like, not female rage, but femininity and stuff. And it's, like, man, this is coming from a man, though. It's still, like, there's still a man there. 
Yeah, I do find that interesting. The whole movie is sort of commentary on, like, what it means to be a woman and, like, the extensive femininity in relation to society, especially in times of conflict. And both the director and the screenwriter are male. And I don't really know how I feel about that. Yeah. But I do feel like it's pretty well done. Like, I don't feel like they were, like, doing a bad job of it or something. No. I'm just like, what caused them to want to do that specific thing? I completely agree. Like, they did a good job. But I wonder that, too. Um, and, like, I also wonder how they went about, like, the screenwriting process. Because, like, I'd hope, you know, they talked to some woman. <laughs> I feel like that's very easy to achieve. Like, surely they've talked Low to bar. a woman. <laughs> a woman before, you know? Like, yeah. just in general, not even about the film. Just like. <laughs> have you talked to a woman? <laughs> that's what I want to say whenever I log on to Twitter. I'm like, yeah. have you talked to a woman? <laughs> that's me when one of my classics textbooks says something weird about Sappho. I'm like, have mm. you talked to a woman ever? <laughs> Probably not. You know, some of these, like, 80-year-old classics professors that write these textbooks, I think the answer is no. So what does this movie, what is it even trying to say about femininity? Okay, we've narrowed down that one of the themes is femininity. Let's Mm -hmm. go from there, okay? So we think maybe, based on the screenwriter's comments, it's about fertility and woman as both monster and healer. Which I think is reflected in this final scene where she has the weird chest vagina of flesh, mm-hmm. which is cursed content for sure, okay? We can all agree that it's a little cursed. And it's sort of this reflection of, okay, she's this super powerful witch who's like in charge of this whole coven, but her first two actions are to kill all the people who disagree with her and then give what the victims want because she kills them because that's what they ask for. So it's this sort of duality of the super powerful woman as both forgiving and murderous. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think it really just depends on what mindset you have when you're looking at it because I can definitely see how how people can just like interpret this movie to be something of like oh if women are in power it sucks because they're witches and they kill everyone but i also do think that's a commentary on that fear because there are good witches and also (laughs) this is like deviating but also i feel like Yes, this movie is about femininity, but I also do think it's a lot about power roles and the abuse of power in situations. Because we do see a lot of the witches and matrons who abuse their power to be killed in the end. Kind of like, kind of like, Susie was kind of playing like a messiah, almost. Well, yeah, I think that's essentially supposed to be a role at the end of the film. Going off of what you said about this reflection of women in power, the screenwriter Kajanich says that he wanted the film to reflect historical fears of the occult and how in a lot of times in the past they were really just fear of women in power and how men perceived this as a threat. And I think the film reflects these ideas by making the witches terrifying, but ultimately not villainous, at least in the case of Mother Suspiriorum slash Susie and Madame Blanc. So we see that some of the witches, maybe they are abusing their power a little, but ultimately the ones with real power that we see that are sort of the most powerful within this like lore that Patricia lays out in her diary, they're good people and they're doing what they can to help these people that the more villainous witches have like tortured or harmed in some way mm-hmm. but i completely agree also I don't, this is like kind of different but i realized i just realized that patricia is just there to give our backstory yes patricia is backstory lore <laughs> she's like i'm gonna leave this diary here mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna die and never be heard from yeah again. but this diary luckily for you has every single bit of information you need to know just somehow, I just somehow knew what you needed How to know. How did she know about the three witches? Maybe they told her? When did they tell her? I don't know. At some point. It's in her diary. But yeah, in case this was like not clear from the 
summary and stuff. There are these three witches. They're the mother of size, whose mother Suspiriorum. Suspiriorum is Latin for size. There's mother uh, Tenebrarum, who is mother of darkness, and mother Lacrimorum, who is mother of tears. And in the original Argento film, there were three films. It was a trilogy and each film centered around one of the three mothers. And presumably that could happen in this modern update, but this film wasn't very financially successful, so it's feeling unlikely. But, you know, that's the intention, is that sort of one of these mothers leads a different movie, or, like, is the villain of one of these three movies in the trilogy. So this is Mother Suspiriorum's movie. And it was by far the most famous, even back when Argento was doing it. The other two did not do as well. So getting back to what is going on in this movie, let's discuss the movie as a political metaphor where the inner turmoil of the dance academy reflects the external conflict in Germany. I did a lot of research, and here's what I came up with. And by the way... No one has the same interpretation of exactly what the political ideology of this movie is. No one can agree, okay? But we agree there is political ideology for sure. Mm -hmm. It's a metaphor. But what is it trying to say? So the movie takes place during the German autumn, which was a period in Germany in 1977 where the Red Army faction, a militant far-left group, kidnapped and killed a former SS member and hijacked a plane in an attempt to get back some of their imprisoned leaders, both of which are referenced in the film throughout various radio and TV broadcasts as sort of background to what the people in the dance academy are going through. This comparison between political conflict and the coven's own strife is made direct in the film when Blanc visits Susie in her room and Susie says that she's worried both of these conflicts will only get worse. So the movie is clearly a commentary on politics, but what is the deeper meaning? Maybe something about the dangers of factionalism or extremism because Mother Marcos's views have become very extreme because she doesn't really care about the mothers anymore. Or maybe Mother Suspiriorum is a metaphor for justice overcoming a violent group. I heard a critic say that one time, so it could be that. <laughs> I wonder, because I remember reading somewhere, like, the German Ottoman stuff is, like, during a time period where Germany as a whole is trying to, like, figure out their culpability, you know, like, in the Holocaust and stuff. And I wonder if, like, it's also a commentary on the collective, you know, like, the coven or the dance academy as a collective and their culpability in the horrors that happened there in relation to, like, the horrors that happened during the Holocaust. Mm, yeah, that could be because, like, the ones who follow Blanc aren't necessarily guilty of anything. And things like Dr. Klimper as a witness and Mother Suspiriorum deciding to erase his memory and saying his guilt is not important because mm -hmm. he's not at fault. Good point. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, I also remember seeing somewhere about Klimper and his role as a witness too, you know, and how that also kind of not showcased, but paralleled his role during the Holocaust because he saw what happened, but like he wasn't able to do anything. So definitely once again, like when she comes and she's like, your guilt and shame don't matter. It could also be a reference to that. Yeah, I think that's definitely a running theme of this film is the people in the film trying to make sense of the Holocaust having happened recently and trying to navigate how to cope with the horrible things that had happened. And I think that the witch's interest in having a witness is definitely meant to parallel that because we hear that they hadn't used a witness in a long time, and it's sort of an archaic part of the ritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows exactly no. what the political metaphor like, is. This movie's doing a lot. 
There's a lot yeah. going on here. I wonder. I I enjoyed the movie. Uh, I yeah. just wonder. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. You know, I just there's like a lot happening in this movie between what's happening uh the coven and like all of the random news things that we just like suddenly hear. It's just a lot and like if you watch this movie one time, you're not going to be able to like really understand everything that's happening. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've watched it 3 times now mm-hmm. and I don't know. I don't know. I think I've picked up on most of the details at this point, but I'm not any clearer on the ultimate goal. Yeah. Getting there, though. Mm -hmm. I have thoughts. (laughs) Did I succinctly describe those thoughts? I'm not sure, but I had them. Yeah. So, is this film queer? Because some would argue yes. And by some, I mean me, (laughs) personally. (laughs) But also, I think it's about as close to being explicitly queer as you can get without it actually being queer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the times when we see things explore femininity, you know, it's there's just a queer vibe. There's just it's a like queer a vibe. little there's something like a little under the surface and you're like, Are you gay? Cause you're holding her hand a little too much right now. You know? <laughs> They're just gal pals. Yeah. There's just friends. They're just super close. Historians would say they were close friends. <laughs> But yeah, we've got a lot of scenes that sort of allude to queerness without actually being queer. So we have Susie and Blanc's relationship where they stare at each other dramatically across the table while telepathically speaking for a while. Blanc visits Susie in her room while she's like relaxing and laying in her bed. All the rehearsal scenes... And scenes where they're, like, holding hands yeah. and stuff. There's no. a lot to imply here that they are in some sort of relationship. And yes, there is a weird age gap. I never said it was a healthy relationship. <laughs> Just that there's a vibe that the movie seems to imply that they are in some way, like, sexually interested in each other. Yeah, because, like, one... I feel like the dance they were doing, definitely very sexual, you know? Like, there was that whole scene where uh, Susie was talking about the jumps or whatever, and she was like, oh, maybe the dance would work better this way to, like, Blanc, and she's, like, on the ground, and she's, like, moving in a very sexual manner while looking up, and I was like, hmm, interesting. And then the holding hand scene, you know, um, she was like, I want to be the hands of the company, and then she, car- like, caresses uh-huh. Tilda Swinton's hands uh-huh. for a very long time. Uh-huh. It was like, this This isn't that necessary. And like, I mean, like, it's cute, but I was like, you held it for such a long time that you, you just didn't, you didn't need to hold it that long, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know when you caress the bestie's hand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As you do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Normal behavior. But... I just, I thought it was really interesting because I feel like at the beginning I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be like a mother-daughter relationship or something, you know, because she's like her mentor and motherhood is definitely something that this film plays upon a lot. Oh, yes. But then like there are moments like that and I'm like, maybe Freud was right. Maybe Freud was yeah. not right, actually. <laughs> I hate him so much. I want to I don't like him either. little face. <laughs> Like, just because just cause you were weird does not mean you need to project upon everyone else. That's, That's so real. <laughs> that is so real. He was a little freak, and he wants to blame women for that fact. No, literally. Literally. Like, okay, Freud. We all see you. We know. We know. Please. But, or maybe Susie just has mommy issues, which we I, did see. Susie has mommy issues. That's not a question, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so anyway, there's definitely implied queerness between Susie and Blanc, but there is between Susie and Sarah as well. These two are the most best friends that a TV show would try to convince you are straight, but all the gay people on Tumblr would be like, no. This is is a little queer, if you ask me. They literally, they share a bed, they kiss each other on the mouth, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the film does not commit to it and instead has 
Susie say that she loves her like a sister? Because they were afraid of the lesbians. Yeah. So anyway, this film very clearly has queer undertones. And I think that probably goes back to the screenwriter's idea to show these women as both empowered and slightly evil, but more as a perceived evil than an actual evil. And here's why I think that. Because being a queer woman is definitely empowering. It's a way to somewhat set yourself outside the patriarchy, all those those forces are clearly still acting on you in a lot of ways. But there's also this long history of queer-coded villains in horror, especially queer women, like we discussed in episode three on Rebecca. Go listen to it. However, we all know that queer women are not automatically evil, so I think it fits quite well into Kajinich's claim that he wants these women to be evil only from sort of an outside authoritative viewpoint of like this patriarchal power structure however if this theory is correct and Kajinich actually thought all this stuff out and did this on purpose and had a reason for doing it why is the queerness not really explicit I think it's because the screenwriter was a man and presumably a straight man although like I don't really know who he is so who am I to say what is up with his personal life um he probably thought that the implied lesbianism was like slightly edgy or whatever because straight men love to think that he probably thought he was like rewriting the horror genre (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's like this is so revolutionary um everyone wishes they thought of this first yeah yeah but all this is speculation and i have no idea why this was written in this way that's my personal theory though assuming that the screenwriter did all of this intentionally i think it was a commentary on how queer women have been treated historically and how they are empowered but others view them as evil sometimes especially within horror movies but you know i think it could have been done better like by making it queer, yeah, or by explicitly making it queer, yeah, you know, by making it clear in any way that the screenwriter did in fact do this on purpose, yeah. Because like right now, I feel like if you're not looking at it in the lens of queerness, you know, it could be interpreted as a presumably straight man just trying to write woman, but not knowing how women work. Yeah, I can see that. I do think that the women in this film are pretty well-rounded. Like, it seems like he knows how women work. Mm -hmm. But if he did not do this on purpose, he does not know how women work. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, I think women are more touchy with their friends than men. Hmm. (laughs) Let's add a little kiss here and there. Let's have them kiss on the mouth. But not like a gay way. No. It's just friendly. You know? I, I heard I heard people say hello like that in some countries, you know? Maybe it's just the way they are. Woman. <laughs> Me and the girls kissing each other on the mouth, um, mm-hmm. because that's how we act. Yeah. That's that's normal to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's discuss Guadagnino's take on this film and what his intentions were in remaking such a beloved horror classic because this really is like if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen Suspiria like what are you doing like it is so good I'm obsessed and it's kind of known for having this very specific style and visual language that sets it apart if you see a still from it you're gonna be like that's Suspiria because it's so visually distinct And Guadagnino, in this remake, went the exact opposite direction. He said that he wanted it to look wintry and devoid of color to contrast the original's bright primary colors. And he's also said that this is meant to be more of a tribute than a remake. So with that in mind, a lot of his choices make sense, and you start to see why certain things are shot certain ways. Because I think if you look at the shot, and like the composition of the shots I think they very clearly reference the original film like there's one part when Susie first walks in to the dance academy it like she thinks she hears something it zooms in on her face in a very specific way that is very similar to the scene where 
the pianist gets killed in the original he thinks he hears a noise and it's like the exact same shot where like zooms in on his face from a certain angle so i think it's extremely clear that guadagnino knew the source material and knew what he was referencing and was purposefully deciding not to go that direction that makes sense i i like that he said tribute instead of remake i was thinking about that the whole time because i was like wow that's a not easy way, but, like, people wouldn't get as mad. <laughs> people did get mad, though. Really? Like, people... I, I guess mean, if it has, like, the same name, it's yeah. harder to say that it was a tribute rather than make a remake. But, yeah, I think when this came out, film critics were like, I don't know about this one, fam. And it was, like, very divisive. It wasn't commercially successful, which it's kind of art housey, so I don't find that surprising, remake or not. But, like, mm-hmm. I think that people even like in the film community that sort of like should know like what was going on and stuff were very like I don't like that this is so different from the original but yeah I agree that him saying it's a tribute instead of a remake justifies a lot of those decisions because then you can be like no no I did that on purpose it's not the same film no it's different it's different we're just drawing elements from the original it's not like other Suspirias. <laughs> it's emo. <laughs> I think it is more emo than the original. Good point. Good point. Okay, so if we're comparing this remake to the original, the original is much more of a traditional horror plotline with Mother Marcos being Mother Suspiriorum like she claims to be in this movie instead of Susie, and Susie must defeat her in order to survive the Coven of Witches' string of murders at this dance academy. Obviously, the film is this incredible, like, stylized masterpiece with these bright colors that are really emphasized and these creative and gory kills. It's a bit style over substance, but in a way that has made it iconic. So you're willing to forgive the fact that the plot makes no sense. My personal favorite example of this, why did the witches have a room full of razor wire? For fun. For fun. I mean, don't you have a room full of razor wire in your dance academy? No, it's normal, you know. Okay, so yeah, the original is also in a ballet school while the remake is at a modern dance academy. I think this makes a lot of sense with the respective film styles because... This ballet school is very, like, sumptuous. When you think of ballet, you think, like, oh, classy, like, European, very, like, rich colors versus modern dance. A lot of times you think of very, like, severe, uh, minimalist, um, sharper movements. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes a lot of sense with the styles and the visual language that these films are trying to evoke. I completely agree. I just... Like, real quick, the dancing in um, the remake, mm-hmm. I thought, was just so insanely cool. Like, the way that they coordinated the breathing and everything, I thought it was, like, very masterfully done. It was just, it told a story. I was, like, enthralled. And I think I saw something about how the choreographer was talking about how they wanted the dance to also reflect ritual and, you know, the witches and stuff and, like, the coven. And you could tell. It was there. It was It was just insane great job also comp the music composition it was it was composed by a member of radiohead yes i was like wow fun trivia yeah no i like (laughs) the soundtrack i think it does a very good job once again of being that like severe modern uh very like minimalist but exactly what it needs to do it sounds like a horror soundtrack from 2018 frankly like a lot of movies have that vibe right now um i think it's comparable to maybe something like hereditary soundtrack in a lot of ways and yeah i agree that the soundtrack and the dance is excellent in the remake which i think is good because the original there's not that focus on the dance Mm -hmm. The dance is not a ritual. It's just a backdrop for these murders, which goes back to the fact that this is Italian. It's coming out of this giallo tradition where the whole point was basically murdering pretty women in a setting like fashion, modeling, Mm -hmm. dance, academy. You want it to look pretty, so you choose something like a dance school to set as your backdrop so Mm -hmm. you can focus on the aesthetic of these kills. Yeah. No, that makes sense. 
Also, in the original, it's not an all-female main cast. There's lots of men at this dance academy. There's male dancers. There's male servants. And there's overall a lot less focus on femininity within the context of an overall theme. I would say it still fits into that like 70s, 80s slasher thing of the victims are women. They're like screaming and in pretty dresses. I think this is probably a good thing in the long run. I don't think Argento's could be topped in a more direct remake. There's a reason why it's so famous. I don't think you could do it better. So changing it gives Guadagnino more room to make something that's successful. No, I completely agree. It was a smart move on his part because, like, he knew people are going to compare them either way. At least now he has the ability to tell the story the way he wants to tell it. Um, Like, change it up a little. Mm -hmm. So is this a good remake, having gone through all these discussions of how it was made? I think it is, but only if you do examine it as a tribute instead of a remake. I think direct comparisons between the two cause the remake to look a bit dull and drawn out and maybe pretentious, could we say? Perhaps a bit pretentious uh, in comparison. Because the original is that like 90-minute traditional horror movie plot in a lot of ways. And by comparison, if you're saying this is the same plot, you look at this movie with its like hour and a half runtime and you're like, oh god, <laughs> this is a lot. Two hour and a half. Yes. Yeah. Did I not say that? No, you said hour. Oh, yeah. This one's like two and a half hours. There's so much going on, and it is a little pretentious, and you're like, just murder someone. I feel like sometimes, I mean, once again, less is more, you know, and I feel like sometimes they were trying so hard to put meaning in it that it definitely gave the pretentious vibe, because it was like... You don't need to put this much. Like, we get it. You're smart. We get it. Like, you put thought into writing it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't need to be this much. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a trend in modern horror, right? Is creating these movies that are very clearly trying to say something. They have a lot of, like, theme. They're trying to hammer home a theme. Everyone always says Hereditary is, like, the main example of this. It's, like, what sort of kicked off this trend and made it super successful. And... I personally love that style of movie. And the fact that I am sitting here saying this is too much, like, you need to take it down a little. No, I agree. Like, Hereditary is my favorite horror movie. So, like, I think it's fun when it has meaning. I feel feel a little smart, you know, when I'm, like, analyzing it. I'm like, wow. Like, look at me. (laughs) Like, I understand what this film is about. But when it's just so much and it's just so much in your face, it's, it just gets to the point where it's like, we get it. Still a fun movie. <laughs> yeah, I do like it overall. That's just my critique of it as a yeah. remake or a tribute or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And like having not seen the first movie yet, like I I mean, I enjoyed it still. Um, And I feel like I could pretty like I, I understood what was happening. I think exposition device, lovely, um, helped me understand the lore. Uh, gotta love my queen patricia um she dropped that lore we love her for it and i do think it works on its own um because of the fact that it is a tribute and that you don't need to know all of these things from the first movie to understand what's happening in the second movie yeah yeah that makes sense so our last fun fact is that anka dr klimper's wife when she shows back up briefly uh is played by jessica harper who was the original Susie Banyan in the 1977 Argento film. So I think that's really fun to give her a cameo because she is obviously super iconic in the original film. So it was so cool to see her back. And now, as we do at the end of every episode, we always rate each film on its queerness and our general enjoyment, both out of 10. Um, So on queerness, honestly, I would say four out of ten just because it's not like explicit you know it's in the lingering touches and stuff and it is very feminine but like I I would have rather it been more explicit I agree yeah I would give it a four out of ten I think that it wanted sort of the best of both worlds where it was like wouldn't it be edgy if we had lesbians and then it just didn't yeah I agree it was there for a sec 
It was there. It was under. It was. It was hiding underneath the surface throughout the entire movie. Yeah. yeah. Um. But they could have definitely explored that aspect more. Once again, the movie's about femininity, and I think it would have been really interesting to explore sexuality as part of the feminine being. And then general enjoyment, um, I would give it 7 out of 10. It was fun. It was a lot. Long. But it was fun. And I liked the dances. Yeah, I was going to give it a 6 out of 10 because I was thinking about, like, what I've rated things before. And I feel like the things that I've rated, like, a 7 or an 8, I've, like, really loved. And I was, like, maybe being slightly harsh and I should have just given them, like, a 10. I don't know. But, like, this for me, I think it was a 6 out of 10 because I loved... I think especially a lot of the later scenes where it did get gorier. I thought the special effects were great. I thought the kills were super fun, very creative. And especially the final scene when the like screen turns like completely red and there's like zombies and stuff. I love that, right? That's so cool. But there's just so much to get to that point where I was like, I can't even watch this in one setting. Like I need to like take a break. Because also, I was, like, taking notes on this movie while I was watching it. I was like, this is so much. Yeah. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. I did like it. But it has not achieved the heights of some of the films we've watched previously. No, that's so valid. It's so true. Every week, we connect our current topic to our next topic that we're going to do in our next episode through some sort of connection that has an actor in common, a theme in common, something that gets us from one movie to the next. So join us next week when we look at a movie that's also been remade a bunch of times. See you in two weeks. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dolly Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti.